Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York, and all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. It must also be said that I rise today with no small measure of regret. Regret because of the state of our disunion. Regret because of the disrepair and destructiveness of our politics. Regret because of the indecency of our discourse. Regret because of the coarseness of our leadership. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths, our bruised arms hung up for monuments, our stern alarms changed to merry meetings, our dreadful marches to delightful measures. Regret for the compromise of our moral authority, and by our, I mean all, of our complicity in this alarming and dangerous state of affairs. It is time for our complicity and our accommodation of the unacceptable to end. In this century, a new phrase has entered the language to describe the accommodation of a new and undesirable order. That phrase being the new normal. Grim-visaged war hath smoothed his wrinkled front. And now, instead of mounting barbed steeds to fright the souls of fearful adversaries, he capers nimbly in a lady's chamber to the lavish pleasing of a lute. But we must never adjust the present coarseness of our national dialogue with the tone set at the top. We must never regard as normal the regular and casual undermining of our democratic norms and ideals. We must never meekly accept the daily sundering of our country, the personal attacks, the threats against principles, freedoms, and institutions, the flagrant disregard for truth and decency. But I, that am not shaped for sportive tricks, nor made to court an amorous looking glass, I, that am so rudely stamped and want love's majesty, to strut before a wanton ambling nymph. The reckless provocations, most often for the pettiest and most personal reasons, reasons having nothing whatsoever to do with the fortunes of the people we have been elected to serve. None of these appalling features of our current politics should ever be regarded as normal. We must never allow ourselves to lapse into thinking that this is just the way things are now. Welcome to an especially liberal artsy election shock <laughs> therapy. That was fun. Thanks. Was fun. Nicely done, guys. <laughs> What are we talking about? <laughs> this is a dramatic reading of um, uh, an interstitial. It's a um, mashup, right? It was a, a mashup. Uh, what were you reading there, Sam? Uh, this was the uh, the opening uh, soliloquy from William Shakespeare's Richard the Third. Yes, um, and I'm, I'm going to ask you to interpret that in a little bit. And I was reading from the transcript of uh, Jeff Flake's speech before the floor of the Senate, uh, announcing he would not be running for re-election in 2019. Or, or in 2018, excuse right. me. Or 2019. Well, he will, yeah. he, he will leave all. office in 2019. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, what's, what's Richard III, what's, what's, what's Shakespeare talking about here? Uh, well, Richard III is talking about um, sort of the end of a period of war and strife and how they're moving, you know, from the winter of our discontent to glorious summer, but how basically we're just... Uh, things things aren't changing. Um, it's just we're moving from war to peace. But you know, grim visaged war has smoothed his wrinkled front, and now he's doing other things. Hmm. But he's still grim visaged war. Hmm. Hmm. And Flake is excoriating what he calls the new normal. This, mm -hmm. in a sense, a war, a conflict, a discontent 
which is the theme mm-hmm. of this podcast, uh, within the Republican Party mm-hmm. and fissures and fractions within the Republican Party over perhaps, maybe, I'm going to ask our two panelists here, so, uh, <laughs> either the character of the president or a shift and change of electoral politics. Mm-hmm. So, um, thanks for that, y'all. Thanks for listening to us. Uh, Sam, do you have a meeting? I do. I have to go actually right now. Oh, no. <laughs> that was really fun. Uh, thank you, Sir Ian McKellen, for your dramatic That's reading. Right. Uh, we, uh, uh, smirking throughout the uh, <laughs> Sam and my dramatic reading here are... Andy Ramson. And Mitchell Crum. Yes, the gang's all here. Thanks, guys. We'll make sure we have a four-part uh, um, uh, piece for you to read, for us to read next time. Okay, you and Sam do a great <laughs> job. <laughs> This is I I, uh, I have only a, I have literally six words written on my schedule for today, Whoa. and the top word is discontent. Mm. Uh, this is the win- this is the fall of our discontent at least, yes. insofar as American electoral politics are concerned. There's mm-hmm. also some international discontent. We'll get to that mm-hmm. if we have time. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about the domestic discontent. What's what's happening, guys? What what, what do we di- what are we discontented about? Well, I'll give a little summary and see what Mitchell has to say. But I think I mean one of the things that's going on right now that's really striking is. Um, first of all, before even Flake's decision not to run for re-election, we had Bob Corker choosing not to run for re-election. Um, Bob Corker was someone who had been supportive of Donald Trump's uh, candidacy for the presidency in, in 2016. Um, he had been actually under pretty serious consideration, it seemed like, to be Trump's secretary of state. Mm-hmm. He was advising the transition team. Um, the caddiest so, rumor I've heard is that Trump dismissed Corker as secretary of state because he was, quote, too short. Okay, that's, you know, seems re- <laughs> reasonably possible. Um, but in any case, like, this is not someone, I say that to say, this is not someone who is violently antagonistic to Donald Trump. I mean, he was not enthused about him as a primary candidate, but once he became the Republican nominee, he was quite supportive. Uh, Bob Corker is also someone who's a pretty consistent, down-the-line conservative. Um, his positions are p- pretty classically Republican. This is not someone you can, I think, dismiss as a, you know, a rhino, a Republican in name only, or something like that, right? So he's he's a conservative guy from a conservative state, um, pretty classic, you know, member of Congress on the Republican side. Um, and Bob Corker decided not to run for re-election. Didn't seem like he was, you know, in particularly great danger. He might have been facing a primary fight, but he probably could have won it. Um, and chose not to run for re-election. In so doing, he's kind of been liberated to criticize the president in new ways and has said, look, this is not really um, a White House that's being run in any kind of mature way. Um, And, you know, the president, of course, kind of then seemed to validate that point by firing back with a series of tweets about how Bob Corker couldn't have won re-election, was a terrible senator, and so forth and so on. So, I mean, so there was that criticism. And then this week we had Jeff Flake, who was, I think, in a lot more danger in terms of re-election and facing a primary challenge um, deciding not to run for re-election, announcing this in that speech on the Senate floor that Chris just read us some um, excerpts from, um, and saying, essentially, this new normal is utterly unacceptable. We have really immature behavior coming out of the White House, um, and we need to stand up and call it out for what it is. And basically, you know, party loyalty is all fine and good, but it can demand too much of us, and it is demanding too much of us, is Flake's case, in that, you know, I need to say, say this, and all members of the Republican caucus need to say this kind of behavior out of the president is not acceptable. Um, so we have two pretty prominent, you know, members of the Congress, pretty clear conservatives. Again, these are not the, what I would call the squishy members, um, criticizing squishy? the president. Squishy in the sense that they're, you know, like people that you you could call a rhino, right? It's people that you would say oh. a lot of their positions are in keeping with the Democrats. They're not people you could imagine saying, and because I oppose Donald Trump, I'm now going to become a Democrat, right? Um, I mean, I guess the Democrats would let them in, but they're not. I mean, they would be deeply in tension with that party, right? They have, they share very little yeah. common ground 
in terms of policy. Um, so this is not like they're about to switch parties. It's just they're saying this president is not reflecting the kind of party we believe we're a part of and you know the kind of policies we want to push for. So, Look, Can I, uh, Mitch, do you want to jump in? Let me amplify one point that, that, Andy, that you just made, which is about the nature of these Republicans. Mm-hmm. We... I want, to, I want to sort of push back on something you're saying, but to help mm-hmm. make the case mm-hmm. for it. Let me emphasize, these are not <clears throat> squishy Republicans. Yeah. And let me say further that when it comes to the Senate, at least, rhinos are nearly dead. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's, uh, there are a few. Maybe Collins, fr- maybe Murkowski, maybe, Collins maybe McCain, Murkowski. if you want to make but that McCain, case. Uh, so, so here's a way of actually yeah. measuring this, yeah. um, rather than just sort of speculating. Is there a rhino index? <laughs> there, well, there's a version of a rhino index, and it's, it's, it's something called DW Nominate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a this is uh, a really ingenious kind of project that's that's been running for a few years now, which basically says we're going to look at every single vote that every that each, both houses of, of Congress take. Mm-hmm. We're going to look at every single person's vote cast on those votes, mm-hmm. and we're going to match them in a network analysis to every other person in their party. Right. And that and by doing that, we're going to figure out who votes with their party most often, who right. strays the most, who crosses mm-hmm. party lines mm-hmm. the most, and we can mm-hmm. we can get some individual scores. If you look at the DW nominate uh, results, and by the way, this comes from a website called VoteView.com, which is free and publicly available, um, and a nice way of visualizing this data. Jeff Flake is one of the most conservative members of the Senate. Right. He votes with his party uh, 95% of the time. Now, even though he's one of the most conservative in the Senate and votes with his party 95% of the time, he's actually slightly less loyal than other Senate Republicans. This tells us that uh, Republican whipping in the Senate is extremely good. The yeah. typical Republican votes with the Republican Party 98% of the time. Yep. But he votes most conservative on the most conservative issues, and so that actually makes him more conservative than the party itself. Hmm. Uh, Corker, on the other hand, although not a rhino, is much more in the middle of the Republican mm-hmm. Party. He votes the Republican. He votes with the party also about ninety-five percent of the time, but um, he's, he's much more in keeping with sort of mainline uh, Republican mm-hmm. uh, conservatism mm-hmm. rather than Flake's significantly more conservative. So, in both cases, this is not Collins. This is not Murkowski. Right. Um, McCain is actually sneaky conservative as right. well. Yeah, uh, he, he gets yeah. labeled as Rhino, but I mean, when you look at his position, that's because he's very he's. Um, when, when he is a maverick, he's very publicly yeah. and very yeah. uh, press friendly. He with disagrees his. loudly. He disagrees loudly. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So um, all that to say, these are not people who are running from the Republican Party. If any, if they're running from mm-hmm. anything, it's, they're running from the president. Right. So. Right. And I think that's an important distinction. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when I when I was looking at these um, speeches, one of the things that kind of Stuck out to me just 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 thinking about you know who uh, you know that these guys these guys are fully Republican. Mm-hmm. It's a question of and this was something that um, I've seen brought up a couple of times is um, you know basically are they still Republican? And mm-hmm. that I think is something to think about is what to what extent is the Republican Party still um, the party that that uh, that they thought they were serving? You know one of the mm-hmm. things that mm-hmm. I think is uh, sort of curious and of course I've been you know teaching conservatism versus. Uh, you know, libertarianism versus liberalism, etc. Mm-hmm. My ideologies class, and one of the things that I've been thinking a little bit about is to what extent is the Republican Party um, still sort of beholden to libertarianism? And I think mm-hmm. in some ways, this is this is sort of where we're seeing sort of a, the new fracture. I think a lot mm-hmm. of times, you know, sort of. The, the the very unhelpful sort of dichotomy of establishment versus. Um, 
whatever else you want to say, <laughs> insurgent mm-hmm. or whatever, which are really meaningless, vacuous um, terms. Um, but I think I think the real fault line at, right mm-hmm. at this moment is is uh, uh, between basically this idea of, of sort of a more libertarian style conservatism versus this more, uh, I guess, populist is one word for it, or mm-hmm. uh, nationalist might be mm-hmm. another um, way of thinking about it, and 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 which which is which is less concerned necessarily with just you know wanting small government and just saying we want we want less you know less less government is better, and more concerned with um, you know basically sort of scoring points in a culture war. In mm-hmm. some ways, and that mm-hmm. and that essentially seems to be more the the metric at this point of 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 uh, mm-hmm. of, of a good Republican. And thinking about that, you know, basically, of course, mm-hmm. what that means is, you know, the sort of the the war that that uh, that Buckley initiated between mm-hmm. you know sort of Russell Kirk style mm-hmm. um, moral conservatives versus libertarians, right. in some ways, is completely eclipsed now by mm-hmm. a new war between um, libertarians and, and populists. And this is um, something that I think we're seeing. You know, I think Flake. Is, was 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 pretty comfortable with sort of the the fusion of conservatism and libertarianism, and I think that's right. where the Republican Party was. That's why he was able mm-hmm. to be so loyal. Mm-hmm. And so now that there's this new fault line where, you know, even even the libertarianism is less of a concern. I mean, that's certainly mm-hmm. not what Steve Bannon is concerned with. No. He couldn't care less about uh, you know small government or anything mm-hmm. like that. And that's certainly not where you know the Trump back mm-hmm. supporters. I mean, you think about uh, yeah, and so. Uh, and so, and so, and so, I think I think in some ways this is where Flake is falling on. I think he's mm-hmm. I think he's sort of breaking mm-hmm. on this on this new this new division. Sort of thinking about the war and the discontents. Okay, well, I, can I speaking thinking even in, in uh, I'm going to abuse this analogy of war and discontent uh, <laughs> extensively in okay. this podcast. Uh, I have a question for each <laughs> of you, but uh, Mitch, you first. Um, as our pol- resident political theorist, uh, help out the dumb international relations guy here. Um, are populism and nationalism always friendly bedfellows, or are they antagonistic at any point? Because it seems like they go together like peas and carrots right now in American politics. Yeah, I mean, so this is where uh, I'd, I'd have to think about history for a second here. They they don't inherently go together. Um, there can mm-hmm. be so 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 an example of this would be thinking about the United States during World War II. So mm-hmm. World War II, you have a moment where the United States is is extremely nationalistic, where we're saying you know sure. basically it's raw raw America. Everybody you know virtually everybody's pulling together. You right. know, yes, there are rations. Yes, it's hard, but you know we're all Americans and we just need to do our bit. Grow our victory know. garden, right? Grow mm-hmm. freedom garden, save our tinfoil. Um, you know, only drive our cars five miles. You know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, 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 so you see a lot of nationalism there, but at that moment, um, even though there is some populism in the mm-hmm, sense of, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's sort of a certain sense of white nationalism, you have the internment of Japanese, sure. things like that. That's not the focus. And certainly coming out of the war, that is not the focus of American politics. In fact, there's quite a backlash against those kinds of attitudes. So mm-hmm. those are seen as, as basically evil, particularly of course, because of the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 basically, you have this division there between the strong nationalism that comes out of World War II and uh, populism that says, you know, we want to we want to sort of forward this um, agenda of a certain kind, uh, you know, of a certain kind of people. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas now, those two are seem to be combined. Where um, you have this strong nationalism, where it's it's all about, uh, you know, rah rah America is combined with, you know, what that means then is mm-hmm. a certain conception of sort of 1950s. Mm-hmm. Um, White suburbia, I guess, um, but also a devolution mm-hmm. of power away from elites. Yes, yes, uh, and, and and well, 
Yeah. It, it, it depends, actually. I think, I think, mm-hmm. I think, in some ways, that's that's a smokescreen. Um, mm-hmm. So, 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 when we think about populism, populism is always going to be about you know, you say you say you want power back to people, and you want sort of uh, a devolution, but this is always forwarded by uh, major. Uh, figures, so so it's just it's just mm-hmm. a question of new sort of new figures. I mean, we think yeah. about the rise of yeah. Donald Trump. Um, you know, this populism isn't fueled by somehow, uh, you know, everybody sitting, you know, sort of the George Washington, everyone under their own fig tree, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all this. You know, this is this is about um, powerful personalities saying, "I'm going to, uh, I, I'm I'm a better elite. I'm basically somebody who's who's on your side." And so right. it's sort of a choosing sides rather than um, inherently being against against elites. And 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 we see this, you know, if you think about. Um, you know, er, sort of perhaps earlier versions of this too. I mean, you think about. Um, I'm trying to think back. Uh, you think you think about you think about earlier versions of what what might be argued as sort of populist um, versions. You think uh, such as um, why am I blanking here? Um, uh, Lyndon Johnson's challenger. Goldwater. Yeah, Goldwater. Of course. So, so, so Goldwater is obviously mm-hmm. a potential populist challenger in the sense sure. that he's sure. rebelling against the elites. He's saying the elites right. are bad, and right. yet Goldwater himself is 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 posturing himself as the new elite. He's the better elite yeah. that right. that you should be following. And so, I think uh, you know, it makes for nice rhetoric. I think uh, populism, mm-hmm. in many ways, you know, is just you know, it's, it's basically just drawing on the values of democracy to say you should, you know, I'm for you, mm-hmm. and these other people aren't. But that's what the other people said, and that's how they got into power in a democracy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so populism, the, the hang-up with populism often then is perhaps a disingenuousness. I'm trying to wrap my head around this. That The people who are preaching populism from the corridors of power are themselves somewhat hypocritical in their uh, in their advocacy for it. Yeah, well, okay, so this is where the word gets tricky. So I guess, yeah, before, yeah, so I think you're right, pointing to inconsistency there. So what, what I'm getting at, I think, is there's sort of like two parts to populism. So on the one hand, there's, um, it's, it's ba- and I think it gets back to the word, it's sort of the population, like who are we talking about and what, what who are we trying to empower? Mm-hmm. And so I think sort of say, contrasting it as elites is is wrong. I think usually what you want to think of is who, who are sort of, who's the population you're trying to promote? And I think, mm-hmm. um, and okay. so, and so, and so when we think about Goldwater, you know, once again, it's sort of the same, uh, mm-hmm. in many ways, arguably the same group of people, right? Mm-hmm. Once again, you have sort of white suburbia, um, people who are doing pretty well um, in America who are saying, we don't like what's going on. We don't like uh, the civil rights movement. We don't like um, the fact that the federal government is imposing, um, you know, rules for schools and things like that down on the states. Okay. Um, and so, so you have this populism where you have a certain population who say, you know, we're being sort of left out. And now we sort of fast forward. We have that once again where we have uh, a group mm-hmm. that says we're, you know, we're, we feel like we're, the losers, and you know, and, and um, uh, amidst these policies, therefore, we we think our group should be should be taken care of more, or shouldn't yeah. be punished, or yeah, I'd, have privileges taken away. However, you want to, however you yeah. want to posture it. Yeah, and I'd, I'd throw in two more things. I, I do think it is largely a smokescreen at some level because it is. I mean, think about it in two ways. One is think about Karl Marx, right? I mean, like so Karl Marx offers in my book a pretty terrible solution to the problems of society, but also a pretty good critique, right? And one of Marx's okay. points is. That look, you can change sort of these different systems, right? Uh, you can have, you know, slavery. You can have feudalism. You can have capitalism, right? But what you always end up with is a few people at the top who kind of control the means of production, mm-hmm. and then the people below who produce and who are basically at the mercy of those people who control the means of production. Sure. Now, then Marx makes this very odd jump, and so somehow claims that with the communist revolution, we will get a glorious new utopia where that won't be the case. And it's not really clear why he makes that jump, at least to me. Um, and I, you know, yeah, if I think you know, history has not. 
um, been particularly kind to um, that idea that that could work, right? Um, you can think about China, you can think about Russia and places like that, right? So, um, but I think his point is well taken. I mean, it's very hard to get away from that. And the other kind of person I'd bring in here is Michaels and the kind of iron law of oligarchy, right? I mean, this idea that no matter what system of government you have, what you tend to get is a few people rising to the top and, and being the ones who really govern. And so, you know, with these populist movements, I mean, they might start out about really being about the people, about people really wanting, you know, real change, right? I mean, you can think about sort of people's revolutions like in Egypt recently, right? But what you end up getting is a few people who harness that and turn it for their own benefit, right? And I think that, you know, this populist movement is we've seen the same kind of thing. I mean, it's people like Donald Trump and people like Steve Bannon, uh, among others, right, who are who are harnessing this for their own purposes. So it's not that it's not real at some level, but, you know, the masses can't rule, really. And so somebody rules on their behalf, and then they have their own set of agendas, which are not really necessarily the same as the people. Okay, and yeah. you're speaking my language because you, you got outside the United States, and now I can now I have something to hold on to. <laughs> in so in the, to, to take the Egypt example, yeah. uh, when the Arab Spring mm-hmm. occurred and mm-hmm. there was a revolution in Egypt that led to the led to Hazi Mubarak being deposed, right. in the in the first in the in the wake the initial, the initial wake of, of Mubarak stepping down, um, what you're saying is that was essentially a populist movement. Mm-hmm. The people in the, yeah. into here square yeah. were a populist movement, but you right. can't turn a bunch of people singing songs and light and 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 setting up tent cities right. into a government and the first thing to step in to fill the void was the Muslim Brotherhood. And what the Muslim Brotherhood is, po- is offering is not populism, per se, but nationalism of a certain sort, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. an Islamic state right. nationalism. Right. And they were democratically elected, although uh, they immediately tried to amend democracy towards right. their liking. Um, and eventually, uh, in a fairly short period of time, they were deposed extra-democratically uh-huh. uh, by the military. And the military is offering a different form of yep. nationalism, right. a more secularist Right. But still, Egyptian nationalism, which itself is also mm-hmm. not populist, although mm-hmm. supported mm-hmm. popularly, the military right. remains very popular in Egypt. Right. Yeah. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. And again, it's you know you, you kind of think back to that original sort of revolution in Tahrir, and it's not those people governing, right? I mean, it's it's right. whether right. it's the Brotherhood or it's the military, there it's not the people, and 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 a lot of them would say this is not really what we did this for. But that's part of the point, right? I mean, you can't. You know, you can't sort of make it into everybody. Everybody has their own government the way they envision it. And so you end up needing some people to kind of, you know, crystallize this into something more real, right? Um, and what you got was first the Brotherhood because they were organized and then the military because, you know, people were concerned about the Brotherhood and they were organized and they could do this. I mean, which, I mean, you know, go back 100 years in time. We're coming up on the 100-year anniversary of the Russian Revolution. And you have that kind of discontent going on in Russia. You have protests. But the people aren't particularly organized. Lenin is. And mm. he's able to step mm. in harness that for his purposes and you get, you know, um, the better part of three quarters of a century of, you know, communism in Russia um, because he's the man on the spot who can, you know, who can use this for something and turn it to his own purposes. Yeah. I think, I think that actually highlights, yeah, I think that's a great point. Populism is almost inherently negative. Like mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. basically just a no, like we don't, yeah. we don't, we don't think the current government. It's a rejection of the current system. Right. Yeah. yeah. The current, the current government, the current regime. Yeah. Current system is, um, is not, is not serving us. Therefore we, we want to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not clear what then replaces right. it. Um, right. and yeah, I think in, um, uh, in many ways, I mean, you sort of see, or you're seeing the same thing in the in the Democratic Party too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're seeing a sort of quote unquote, you know, what, what people are describing the Bernie Sanders rebellion is sort of a populist rebellion, right. right? In the sense that a lot of Democrats feel like they don't like uh, the direction that that uh, you know maybe the Clintons mm-hmm. um, have taken the party or things like that. Right. Um, and yet, it's not clear that a lot of foot soldier Democrats want to sign on to socialism, um, even so democratic socialism in the form of Bernie Sanders. And so, um, you know, he's more of a representative of someone who's just saying, 
um, no. And, 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 and what that means then, and this is where sort of getting back to, and this is where th- these things get squishy. And I, I think, I think people are still trying to work out where, how we this now all sits down. Squishy yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. Yes. Yeah. So this, this, this right. is where things get tricky, but, <laughs> um, but I do think, I do think part of what's going on though. And I think always what's at the back of this, um, you know, in sort of Benedict Anderson's terms, you know, you have this imagined community. I mean, mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. this, you have this idea that there is, that, that there is this, we, this group, Within um, the nation state, with, within the nation state, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so within the United States, you know, there is some some we we imagine ourselves as a community. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this is why when I go on my honeymoon, uh, in, I was I went to my honeymoon in, in Banff in, in Canada, right? And we ran into this other uh, couple um, from uh, from the states, mm-hmm. uh, saying this glacier, and even though we. Like we we never saw each other before or since. Like we had to have this moment where we shared, like where we were from, <laughs> and this notion that we were somehow more alike each other than we were like the Canadians around. Us. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. Sorry, yeah. so that, that's Benedict Anderson's notion of an imagined community. This 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 sense of right. the sense of weirdness. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. and 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 so and so and so I think you know that's that's sort of at the back of this too, right? Where basically mm-hmm. you say that it's, you you construct some kind of idea of the commu- of, of of a community and you say this community isn't being served mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. therefore we need to get um, a group that will serve this community and and I think you know Donald Trump I think that's why he's rightly called populist in that way I mean he's mm-hmm. basically said I will serve this group and I will get rid of these people um, and I think you know that then the turnaround question is well what are you going to put in its place and he hasn't had a good answer for mm-hmm. for that at any point mm-hmm. um, and so and, and I think the real worries then I think this is where flake is particularly concerned is to say well what what, what then is going to replace this what's mm-hmm. what you know what what is the yes going to be and I think this is where flake um, and Corker and some of the others mm-hmm. are, are really worried um, because some of the influences that Trump has invited to be sort of the positive side of this, you know, thinking of Steve Bannon, people like that um, have ties to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, white nationalism and the alt-right, which is uh, a fairly unsavory group. Mm-hmm. Well, and on top of that, I think I think that's right. But then I think it, I think their worries go one step further, too. It's not just the fact that Donald Trump has no good solutions, because if he didn't, right, then you could imagine a scenario in which the Congress steps forward and says, well, in fact, we do. Right. Let's pass some stuff and persuade the president to sign it. Um, but what we have instead is the president actively undermining any ability to do that, right, by engaging in all these personal, p- personal conflicts, essentially, um, that are really, really distracting. I mean, so whether it's, you know, um, getting into it with this sort of recent war widow, right, in really yeah. kind of insensitive ways, um, or whether he's tweeting angrily at Bob Corker and Jeff Flake and John McCain, all of which he's done, right, um, and attacking them in speeches and so forth, I mean, um, what you're doing is you're undermining the ability of the Congress to get anything done, too. And so part of it is they're concerned that he doesn't have a good good agenda, and insofar as he has an agenda, it's not so good and not really um, what they signed on for as Republicans. But also part of it is the deep sort of immaturity um, that this president continually displays. I mean, this is a 71-year-old man um, who cannot pass up a personal conflict, right? And it, it does, I mean, like, you know, like Bob Corker's analogy, the White House daycare, right? I mean, it does kind of work, right? Because this does feel like the kind of conversations I have with my children, right? Um, that, look, you can say the same thing, but there's a good way to say it, and there's a bad way to say it, and you need to learn to say it in the good way. And we're working on that at home with an 8-year-old and a 5-year-old and a 2-year-old, right? Um, it does feel sometimes like the president never got that lesson, right? And that is that is disconcerting. That is not normal, right? And that's part of Flake's point. I mean, when you look at 
um, our presidents of the past. I mean, I'll just take the last two as an example, right? I disagree deeply with Barack Obama and with George W. Bush in different ways. I think both of them, in many ways, were not um, great presidents. I think they, in many ways, harmed our national politics. Um, Having said that, I think we can also say that they never descended to this level. They never got into sort of personal fights, um, whether through their Twitter accounts, their speeches. They were able to keep their eyes on the ball. And I didn't always agree with what they did when they had their eyes on the ball, but they kept their eyes on the policy ball, and they said, this is, you know, I'm the president, I'm supposed to govern the United States, I'm supposed to represent the American people, and they were pretty successful at doing that, even though I think they did some other things that were were not so useful for our, our country, right? So... You know, this is a this is a stark contrast. So Trump is not only not able to do useful things also, but he's also then descending to this level of immaturity. And again, when you have countries that uh, in the, you know, the sort of the bigger sphere that Chris and I study, right, that are watching the every move and the every comment of our president, um, that is disconcerting. And there's a reason Bob Corker says this president could lead us into World War Three. I hope that won't happen. But at the same time, you can understand what he's saying, right, that when you're this irresponsible with your words, um, it only takes one person taking it wrong at a given moment, and then we're in some big trouble. You know, you said. Oh, sorry. No, please. Uh, you said. You know, you said one thing that I think um, gets back to. You know, that when after Flake's speech, the reaction um, from many folks on the left um, was basically to say, "This is just hypocrisy," um, mm. because basically, as Chris pointed out at the at the open here, you know, Flake basically votes with the Republican Party mm-hmm. uh, virtually all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very very rare that he that he doesn't, and so basically, uh, you know, and I. Um, I think 538 had their, like, Trump meter on him that said he votes with Trump, like, 91% of the time right. or something like mm-hmm. that. So, mm-hmm. um, Including a bill recently that uh, flew under radar because of all these uh, personal stories, uh, um, limiting the ability of individuals to sue banks and insurance companies yeah. uh, um, for um, – uh, for credit card fraud and those sorts of things. Yeah, mm-hmm. which in the wake of the Experian thing is a little bit disconcerting. Yep. Um, but nonetheless um, – uh, so, but at any rate, one of the things to think about is to what extent is is Flake um, being a hypocrite, and to what extent does um, you know do th- does this does this debate go beyond policy? Um, and and I think this is this is where um, so the contemporary politics and the place of narrative mm-hmm. um, in politics sort of makes things difficult to to quantify and nail down. But um, you know, to what extent is Flake? Um, a hypocrite, and to what extent is Flake um, actually getting at something important? And, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I think one of the things to point out here, too, is like, so John McCain was asked this question, right, yeah. a couple weeks or a week ago or so. And, you know, they said, are you going to never vote with Trump again because you disagree with him and you think he's immature? And McCain's basically, I mean, like, you know, again, McCain disagrees loudly, right? Um, that is a really stupid question. I'm not answering that question. Of course, but then he's sort of like, I'm, of course I'm going to vote with him if he's, if I agree, right? I mean, like, I'm not here to, like, you know, assess my vote based on where Donald Trump is. I'm here to advocate for policies that I believe in policies that I believe are beneficial for the state of Arizona that I re- represent in the United States Senate, right? And so I, I think that's the the rejoinder, right, is that, I mean, like, insofar as Donald Trump does advocate for Republican things, and look, I mean, he did win on the Republican, you know, um, ba- ballot. He um, has filled his administration with Republicans, and so insofar as policy proposals have come out, um, they they do tend to be generically Republican, not all of them, but, um, but they, they tend to lean on that side, right? So... I think this is a lot less about policy and a lot more about concerns about, you know, again, that sort of personal maturity piece. I mean, I think they probably are concerned about some of the Bannon-type influence, but but it seems more that it's just like this is not an appropriate way to handle the presidency. Um, And and we need to we need to stand against, you know, that inappropriateness. 
Well, let me uh, let me ask you a question then, Andy, because it's I want to play devil's advocate here. Sure, go. And I I'm going to take uh, Dr. Crumb's uh, analysis of populism at fa- uh, um, and, and adopt it as my own, and, and uh, <laughs> say, okay, so this, if it's the case right. that what Donald Trump and what populism is really good at doing is saying no, mm-hmm. no, what are you going to do about it? I don't know, but no. no. Um, and that, and that, yeah. and the, and the Twitter bullhorn that he wields is very good at critiquing the system as it exists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's not particularly good. He, he didn't really get elected on an agenda per se, but he got elected right. on the negation of an agenda. The negation mm-hmm. he's, he's got elected mm-hmm. on was the negation of Obama mm-hmm. and the negation yep. of democratic yep. leadership generally, but in particular that president. Right. If that's the case, what he's still doing this the, what what Andy Critic characterized as is sort of daycare politics mm-hmm. uh, is in fact his winning strategy as a mm-hmm. as a populist. Mm-hmm. He's he if he tried to turn and pivot, you know, everyone uh, and, and Flake mentions this in his speech that the pivot that they mm-hmm. thought was going to come has never come, and it's been right. nine months in, and the pivot is not coming. Well, right. yeah, the pivot's not right. coming because he's. Because Donald Trump is, in fact, winning at what he's good at doing. Mm-hmm. He's being mm-hmm. a good populist. Mm-hmm. Um, he's drawing yeah. attention to a system that people are saying no to. Right. And the problem is people can only – and now that he's in the system, that cry is much less effective. Right. And so the people who supported him because he was the person shouting down the system out from outside are not going to continue to support him shouting it down from the inside. Mm-hmm. So what? And so here's my question to Andy. Sorry, I'm rambling through this. but. <laughs> Um, people, uh, Flake was do it was was incredibly unpopular in Arizona, and I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe you know the answer to that. But Flake was was going to face a pretty tough primary challenge from his right uh, before he even had a, a fairly tough reelection battle against a Democrat in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This works less well for Corker. Corker probably had a safer reelection yeah. road. But is Flake just? on his way out, throwing some parting shots at the president because they need this president to stop being such a populist and start being more part of the institution of the Republican Party, that is. And that president, that's just not Donald Trump's winning strategy. Mm-hmm. As, is, and, Flake is, and Flake is the one best equipped to make this statement. Is, is Flake being kind of hypocritical? Um, that if Donald Trump uh, was... was uh, as a more normal, well, not, I shouldn't say that. What, what Flake wants Donald Trump to be is a more normal Republican president, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. just not what Donald Trump was. That, that's not the dance that brought Donald Trump here. Yeah, I mean, I'd say a couple things. One is, I don't think Flake's being hypocritical exactly. I mean, he has he did come out with a book, you know, a couple months back, in which he basically, you know, was critiquing this too. Um, so this is by far his strongest statement, but he has been hinting at this for a while. Um, I don't. I also don't think we're going to nominate Jeff Flake for like you know the new profiles in Courage, right? I mean, like when you decide not to run for election because you're facing a very difficult campaign, and then you attack the president, even though he's clearly thought these things for a while, right? Sure. Um, I think I don't think this is some you know sort of you know bitter shot at the president, right? I think it's you know like I feel liberated now to say what I'm going to say because I don't have, I'm not worrying about re-election, and so I'm not really calculating about that anymore. So I don't think it's hypocrisy exactly, but I don't think it's. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's like sort of great courage either. I mean, again, he has, you know, at this point, nothing to lose because he's not going to present himself to the electorate again. Um, and, you know, and if, if, in fact, eventually the Republicans come around to this view, then Flake's going to be one of the people who got out there and said it early on, right? Yeah. So I think in that sense, um, that's beneficial. I mean, as far as the Donald Trump, you know, populism is a winning strategy, I think it sort of is. Um, but at the same time, like, once you get in, you have to govern, right? I mean, and... 
Uh, I think you know if you if you can govern and get some accomplishments under your belt, right, then it makes winning re-election much more plausible. I'm just not convinced he can win in the same way he won. I mean, you can't win. I don't think you can win as a negation four years later, right? Four years later, right. you need to be able to come and say, "This is why you want to give me four more years as president." Um, because I've done some things for you, right? I've accomplished some things, and so, sure. so I'm I'm just not sold. I mean, on the fact that this is a winning, a continual winning strategy for him. Um, his, you know, his approval ratings are not disastrously low, but they're low. I mean, it's going to be hard to win re-election at 38, percent right? Um, you know, it, is it possible? Sure, it, but it it does, um, you know, because like he was around that, you <laughs> know, last time. But but it assumes the Democrats are going to, for a second election in a row, nominate an incredibly terrible candidate, someone who has incredibly high negatives like him, and who can't, uh, you know, electioneer his or her way out of the, a box. The chances I, of that are actually fairly high if you look at the Republican fi- or the Democratic field. Right well, now. yeah, but I mean, <laughs> even the even though their 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 candidates are flawed. Most of them are going to be at least marginally better than Hillary Clinton. And if Hillary Clinton had been marginally better than Hillary Clinton, she could have <laughs> um, beaten this guy, right? And she did beat him in the electoral uh, – in the, in the popular yeah, vote, right? So, so I mean, she was not too far from actually winning despite running a truly terrible campaign, having some bad timing issues. Um, you know, so – you know, if you nominate even an aged Joe Biden, right, or somebody like that, and that will um, be the way we refer to him if he runs in twenty twenty. The aged Joe, Biden. yeah, I like calling him the aged Joe. So, um, but with teeth that look far better than somebody his age ought to look. I'll just say, every time I see Joe Biden, I'm impressed by the whiteness of his teeth. They are they can see them all the way from North Korea. They can. They're like a national you know, treasure or something. <laughs> anyway, um, so I mean, it's just I, I do think you have to accomplish something to win again in in twenty twenty. And I yeah. I wonder what his strategy is. In that okay, way. I agree with that, Andy. But let me and and I, I don't even know if I buy this, but I'll make this argument. For, uh, <laughs> what if Trump is is our first modern accidental president? Now we have had <laughs> ac- hold on, we've yeah. had accidental presidents in the past. Oh, yeah. And I'm not talking about people who assume the presidency upon the death or assassination right. of a. Of, a, of, a, of the prior president. Right. I'm talking about people who were party loyalists or who were, in, were party apparatchiks at various points in, mm-hmm. in both parties' histories and kind of fumbled their way up to the, up to the mm-hmm. presidency. And mm-hmm. I would nominate William Howard Taft as an example of this. Yeah, he didn't really want to be president. Um, who didn't really want to be president. There, and there, and the, Calvin Coolidge is another good example of someone who kind of fumbled their way up to the mm-hmm. presidency. Um, Donald Trump ran, has, has been running since possibly 2008 as a maybe earlier maybe 2006 as as a populist as a populist thorn in the republican party mm-hmm. and even up until three weeks before the gen- the general election against hillary clinton his his uh um his party uh, or his campaign officials thought they were going to lose this, they were always. I think they thought they were going to lose on election day. They thought they, they, thought they were going to lose but, in the primaries. They thought yeah. they were going to lose on election day. They thought they, they never. They, he was never playing from a lead. Right. He was always playing from behind. Yep. And maybe he didn't expect to win. Along, oh, yeah. Maybe he thought I'll enter into the primaries as a way of pushing the Republican Party in a more populist direction, and to be quite self-serving, to build my own brand, yep. to yep. you know start a TV a TV channel, to build a network, to you know to promote mm-hmm. to promote, the, mm-hmm. promote the Trump name. Oh wait, I'm doing really well. Yeah, and, and let's yeah. keep going with what brought me here. Oh, I, I, I'm now I'm I, now I'm in a in the in the general election. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll keep going with what brought me here. And mm-hmm. did Donald Trump maybe just fumble his way to the presidency without ever a real vision for governance? Mm-hmm. Only only a vision for populism, mm-hmm. but now that he's here, he can't pivot. Like he's tied to what got him here. Yeah, he's in perpetual campaign mode. I think I agree with all that. I just don't know that that means you can't, right? I mean, like, and that's where, like, you know, the, I'm always, I always want to be hopeful, right? So 
when Donald Trump won, um, you know, that was my hope is that he would find a way to be, grow into this, even though I agree with all that. I don't think he actually thought he was going to win the nomination or the presidency. Um, you know, and I, I, I think when he came out that night, you know, to give his victory speech, he was quite shocked about this, right? I mean, like, um, it was just, it was interesting. So, you know, it, it, I think that was a big, big surprise to him. But then once he got in, yeah, I mean, he obviously has not been able to pivot. Um, but the hope was that he would, you know, figure out, oh, now I'm president. I actually need to be president, right? I mean, um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, he doesn't, he's not showing an ability to do this. I, yeah. So I don't, I don't know what else to say about that other than, does that mean he cannot do it or he just can't wrap his mind around doing it? I don't know if, if you want to say can't or won't. I'm not sure. So let me ask the two political, you two as political scientists, for those of those listening who are not political scientists, what is the, how seriously does the scholarship suggest we should take people like Corker and Flake? Are these canaries in the mine shaft that suggest imminent collapse of the Trump presidency? Or are these voices crying in the wilderness and we can we can ignore them? What's how how much to make of folks like Corker and Flake? Um, I mean I think on the one hand it's certainly I mean it's certainly true that we should we should take seriously what they have to say in the sense that um, re-election motives are very real, and mm-hmm. they constrain mm-hmm. Congress members pretty pretty mm-hmm. strongly. I mean, we think about you know you can go all the way back to classic works like Mayhew and Fenno, and mm-hmm. all the way up to you know to current works. And basically, uh, what you see you know is that is that base is that Congress people um, base, uh, are, are basically very focused on re-election, and that's yeah. that's their yeah. that's their core goal. And yeah. um, once they're no longer thinking about that, then they're suddenly freed to, you know, to be genuine, to actually speak their minds and to say um, what they really think. Not to say that they can't necessarily do that sometimes beforehand, but they're always very constrained. And I think um, Flake sort of was trying to be somewhat constrained before, and now he no longer feels like he has to do that. He, he no longer has to... Um, in, in, the leash is off. The leash is off. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so, so now he can make this speech and basically say this. And I think Corker is is, is in the same mm-hmm. same position. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that means there's going to be a lot of change, I think one of the things that that this indicates, and one of the things I was I've been thinking about with this is, um, you know, in many ways, uh, part of a big part of voting theory in political science is just to say party loyalty is, um, you know, sort of the key driver for for mm-hmm. for, uh, for people's votes. And if you want to predict how somebody's going to vote, you just say what what party ID do you have? And if you want to think about why people identify mm-hmm. with a particular party, it has a lot to do with just their upbringing, what their parents were, um, and right. then whatever commitments they make when they're in college. Occasionally, people change during that during that age. But pretty much once you've picked a party, you've you've picked a side, and you and you very rarely deviate from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in many ways, you know, you think about what is the Republican Party then? Mm-hmm. And I think in many ways we sort of sometimes want to take this, and this is why I think, you know, sort of the trying to make it sort of a, a, a loftier conversation about ideology when we think about populism is, is mistaken in many ways. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. in many ways the way people think of politics and the way they vote is simply, I'm part of this group. This mm-hmm. is my group. Um, the leader of my group has said X, therefore I follow it. Right. And right now, the leader of the X group happens to be the Republican Party. The leader of that group has said, um, "I'm doing this and this, and I don't. I want these people to not be elected." And therefore, voters say, "Okay, that's that's fine. I'm I'm on board mm-hmm. with that." And that's how, what the polling indicates. And so, right. when we think about what the Republican Party is, it's much better to think of it as mm-hmm. more of a, you know, this is this is a group that people self-identify with. You know, 
whether it's an imagined community or mm-hmm. something thinner, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> even, you know, just, just, just having that, that party. I mean, and, and once again, I mean, you know, just to point back to the previous election, I mean, people were asking, you know, will, will re- the Republican party come together to somehow vote mm-hmm. for Trump? And I think the assumption behind that question is there's a lot of lofty ideas and ideology that mm-hmm. goes into people's votes. And what political science has told us for a long time is that that's just not the case. And lo and behold, mm-hmm. when it came to the ballot box, right. people Basically people right. voted for somebody who mm-hmm. is, you know, as Flake correctly says, is, is not in keeping with right. either moral conservatism or libertarian conservatism. Right. And, right. Um, you know, that doesn't seem to matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it only mattered at the very edges and obviously not enough to cost him the election. So, um, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think the in terms of the canary in the, um, you know, mind kind of question, I mean, it depends, right? I mean, like, what, what I will just say is two things. I think one is um, it depends a little bit on the, his ratings, right? I, th- I do think if if he so a couple things like if you think about what's going forward, if if no legislation gets passed, right? Right now the Republicans are trying to get a tax bill passed. They're really trying to hold by together. The way, while you, while we were talking, it passed the, the blueprint passed the House yes. two sixteen to two twelve. Wow, that's really close. Mm-hmm. Very close, We're considering the Republican majority. Yep. Um, so they're trying to get this passed. They're trying to hold it together. I mean, they're. You know, Ryan and McConnell really want to get some accomplishments. Um, so, you know, if they can get those things through, right, then they, they want to keep working with this president as much as they can. Um, but what happens if, you know, they try legislation, it ultimately fails, which has so far been the case. Um, what happens if, you know, the president's approval ratings drop five, ten more points, right? Um, you know, that could become a problem, right? So then you might have more people standing up against him. And what happens if more people don't run for re-election? I mean, there's a number of others who might. Are they going to take the same path? I will. The other thing I want to note here is this is unusual, right? We've now had three people who are not running for re-election, essentially, right? Um, so John McCain, who, I mean, his five-year, you know, survival likelihood is not high, right, given the kind of cancer he has. Um, so he's probably not running for re-election in 2022. Um, and then Flake and Corker. All three have come out and have made pretty strong statements about this president in one way or another. That's unusual, right? There were a lot of senators who didn't run for re-election, um, Republican senators who didn't run for re-election um, when George W. Bush was president. There were a lot of Democrats who didn't run for re-election when Barack Obama was president. And their move, as soon as they decided not to run for re-election, was not to go out and excoriate right, um, Bush mm-hmm. or Obama, right? It was to say, I'm going to continue serving my people and blah, 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 right? That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so this is unusual, right? I mean, this is, you know, the fact that the three people who are unchained have all essentially sung from the same songbook. Um, is striking. Where does that lead us? I think that's a different question. I'm not sure. And I'm so to further torture my analogy, the canaries are singing in the mine shaft, yeah, but are. the mining continues apace. It does, <laughs> right? Because I mean, you know, again, you want to you, know, you want to turn a profit, right? Sure. Um, so you know, you're better off continuing to mine if possible. Um, but but then, what if we're all going to die, right? <laughs> I think I think this gets back and just to sort of be political theory again for a second. I mean, if we think about, I, th- I think in many ways what we're watching here is is a big endorsement of Schumpeter's critiques of, of American democracy and democracy in general. What are Schumpeter's okay, critiques so, of American so, democracy? So Schumpeter, uh, it's been a while since. Yeah, basically, basically his his argument is that you know once again, just as we said, people know very little. Um, mm-hmm. People are very easily led by by leadership. And so essentially, you know, and if one of his analogies he uses is he says, you can sell any cigarettes as long as you put a scantily clad pretty girl next to it. Um, and so he says, basically, people, people are guided more by their emotions and by their appetites than they are by anything intellectual or mm-hmm. reasonable or anything like that. And so he, and he, of course, he has, he's, he's basically an economist, so he has lots of examples and data and mm-hmm. things like this. Think about this. And it's not hard, you know, to imagine, mm-hmm. to imagine this. Um, 
Mm-hmm. So you're right. So 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 he says that's the case. And so essentially, what he argues is that that uh, for you know for this very elite uh, for, for form of democracy, where you basically you need to have um, very clear parties that have very clear platforms that set out uh, divergent visions, and people need to have basically this black and white choice where it's just like here's one option, here's the other option, let's go for it. And I think maybe part of what Flake and the Canaries, if, in the sense, are are saying is you know basically the one choice. Is is, is 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 in some ways that that this sort of elite model is breaking down mm. that the that the elites are no longer serving the function that we need them to serve and so right. um, if they're no if, if 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 you if you basically have this elite breakdown then you then, then basically people become led by what you know once again what whoever has the loudest voice and whatever can appeal to their mm-hmm. appetites and mm-hmm. baser instincts rather than mm-hmm. actual policy choices and I think maybe that at the core in some ways is what Flake and Corker and McCain are, are worried about. I think I think we sort of intuit, even though even though we like to have these sort of higher ideals of mm-hmm. democracy where we say, oh, they're going to have discourse and all this stuff. Right. You know, we, we sort of know that that's not really possible for most, and, and both both due to the size of democracy and also because mm-hmm. people aren't engaged, and we know right. that. Um, and I think you know what we expect then of our elites is for them to have the serious policy debate that we can't have, both because we don't have the knowledge, we don't have the time, we don't have um, the ability to do that. And so we sort of, in many ways, I think we've sort of accepted Schumpeter's um, critique in that sense. I mean, where sure. we sort of say we need this elite democracy, we need these these elites to do this. Um, and and I think that's in many ways what they're worried about. They're saying, look, if if we don't have elites who are who are doing this, mm-hmm. then what are we going to be left with? I mean, what becomes of democracy then if the if the elites aren't able to have this serious policy discussion where we're actually engaged in real policy evaluations? Yep. Um, that then nobody is. I mean, then we're essentially adrift. I and mean, I think that's what kind of what Flake is worried about. He's saying, you know, then, you know, or, yeah. or Corker too. I mean, then we're sort of at the mercy of a daycare. And wasn't it actually supposed to be the elites who are taking care of having the real policy conversation? Right, right, right. Um, you know, and so I, I don't know. I could I could say more about that. I mean, just just mm-hmm. to think that, like, you know, just circle in like two sentences back mm-hmm. to the policy. There back to the populism question. I think you know, there's always a danger of populism of saying we want to say no to all of what the elites are talking about Mm, um, because it doesn't seem to serve us. And I think that's always true. And I think, you know, elites need to be sensitive to that, to think about who are they serving? What do people actually want? Things like that. But um, the danger then is just to say, well, elites themselves are bad. And I think maybe that's what Flake and Corker um, are getting at is, is to just say, well, this is, this is all bad. Just get, get rid of all the, all the elites. And A, as we already said, that's impossible, but B, that also forecloses the real, any kind of real policy debate. And that's, and that's one of the problems, I mean, with Donald Trump's particular kind of no populist solution, right? It was that sort of drain the swamp, get rid of all these guys, and then, I mean, A, there isn't a really good replacement option, right? But B, I, I don't think that's how a really good change happens, right? I mean, um, so one of the, you know, um, a couple of the works we teach in humanities um, is from Thomas Paine and Edmund Burke debating about the French Revolution, right? Thomas Paine says you got to clear out all the junk and just, like, sort of write it all anew. And so, like, he's like, yay, French Revolution's awesome, right? We should definitely do this. Um, and, of course, it didn't turn out very well, right, to put it mildly. Um, and what you eventually <laughs> end up with is dictatorship, right? Um, and, and a, nice a lot of, of terror in between. Right? Yeah. With a lot of terror and beheadings in between, right? So, um, so it's a huge, huge mess. Burke makes the alternative case that, no... You know, you do, I mean, you do need to make political changes. You do need to improve your system, but you have to do it incrementally. You have to do it slowly, and you have to build on the good that you have, right? And so I think Burke would have also been deeply uncomfortable with this drain the swamp analogy, right? Mm -hmm. And would have said, no, there is good there, and you need to build on it. 
How do you do that? Largely through these elite conversations, right? Because these are the people who are, are positioned to to do that. And so I think that's the, you know, to bring in one more political thinker, right? I think that's the sort of Burkean take on this. And I think that would be um, much more productive in terms of actually moving us somewhere. But that's yeah. not the conversation we're having. Right and, and, I, and I do think that's the intuition of some of these guys. I think, you know, people like Corker. And uh, yeah. one of the things I was interested in to see in Flake is Flake is, you know, he actually draws on, like, Madison's Federalist 51. Right. So he's yeah. showing, like, he's actually thought seriously about yeah. what it means to be a conservative and what yeah. it means. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's part of what is probably yeah. worrying him as well is that, you know, these these ideals um, that he thought, um, you know, right. we're, we're, uh, we're what the Republican Party stood for are, are, are no longer what it is. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> I guess I guess in one thing, uh, I don't know, Chris, if you've talked to Sam about that. I, I know we were thinking about discontent, but maybe the subtitle for this podcast should be In Defense of the Swamp. Well, it's certainly it. The Swamp <laughs> certainly is. The Swamp certainly is squishy. Um, it is squishy. It is squishy. It's squishy. I wanted uh, to start- it's not a healthy place for canaries, probably, either. No, so. no. <laughs> A lot of swamp gases. That's going to be a problem yeah, for yeah, those yeah. canaries. Canaries um, don't swamps. Well, to, 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 to kind of conclude, and let's, let's turn back to uh, uh, let's turn back to Flake here. What I'm taking away from both of you here is the suggestion that um, that what Flake and Corker find themselves availed to do once mm-hmm. unleashed from their parties is make a claim to the importance of elites, not necessarily swamp per se, but the importance yeah. of a of a discursive elite which can, who must, mm-hmm. in some ways, put aside their partisan rancor from, uh, mm-hmm. for public consumption when it comes yeah. time to make deals. Mm-hmm. Yep. Flake himself, at the end of his speech to the Senate, so I'll be reading here a little bit more here from, from uh, Senator Flake. He says, Mr. President, addressing the President of the Senate, Mr. President, the, the graveyard is full of indispensable men and women. Mm-hmm. None of us here is indispensable, nor were even the great figures of history who toiled at these very desks in this very chamber to shape the country that we have inherited. What is indispensable are the values which they consecrated in Philadelphia and in this place, values which have endured and will remain so long as men and women endure to, uh, wish to remain free. Uh, what is indispensable is what we do here in defense of those values. A political career does not mean much if we are complicit in undermining those values. I thank my colleagues for indulging me here today. Now, I I would just Mm -hmm. add that clearly what Flake is intending us to think of in terms of those values are principles of freedom and Mm -hmm. and liberty and Mm -hmm. individualism and self-governance and lots of of things enshrined in Madison and elsewhere Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. Federalist Papers. But also implicit in that is the nature of the Senate, not just as a deliberative body, but as a deal-making body. Right. And as a body yep. of compromise amongst elites uh, for, ultimately, for state interest and possibly mm-hmm. self-interest as well, mm-hmm. but right. ultimately for the good, of the, good of, the, of, the, of the American people. And the Senate has rarely been as divided as it is today. Right. In, in fact, looking at that DW nominate score, uh, a, a scatter plot of all of the senators in the Senate right now, um, there is a fairly wide gulf between the most liberal Republican and the most conservative Democrat. The most conservative yeah. Democrat, by far, is Joe Manchin. Right. Uh, the most conservative uh, or most liberal Republican is, is Susan Collins. Right. And there's a pretty wide gap between those two people. There's no mm-hmm. crossover. There have been other times in American history where there were more conservative Democrats than the most liberal Republicans. There was sort of mm-hmm. an intertwining. There was a purpling At most times, in between really, the red and yeah. blue. And mm-hmm. there's just quite, quite a wide gulf between yeah. them. Yeah. And, that's, and that's something else that I think that Flake is implicitly referencing mm-hmm. here. I want to close the same way he closed uh, today with one more quote. Um, Flake says, uh, he says this, I'd like to close by borrowing the words of of President Lincoln. 
And these are President Lincoln's words. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passions may have strained, it must not break the bonds of our affection. The mystic chords of memory will swell when again touched, as surely as they will be, by the better angels of our nature. Um, and maybe, for Dr. Crumb's point, angels live in the swamp. <laughs> no, too much. It was too much. It was too much. Um, hey, we got to go. Went to uh, the swamp one, one time too many. Too many. It's just one time too many. It's too squishy. It's too squishy. All right. Um, as we haven't said this in a while, but we'd love to hear from you if you're listening to our podcast. Thank you so much for doing so. You can always email us at electionshocktherapy at gmail dot com. Um, if you send us your questions, we'll get back to you in person as we've been doing, or um, if it's relevant, we'll throw it up to the uh, uh, throw it up on a future podcast. Uh, thanks so much. Keep listening to this channel. We got some more great stuff coming later this week. Thanks, friends, for being here. Go Royals. Mm-hmm.